seven years since we started it, and, and, the, and the student team as well. Can we just give them all a hand for their investment in our students? Thank you, guys, uh, for the way you invest in the next generation. It's so significant. Uh, yeah, that's a great question about uh, a trip where you were a little uncomfortable, uh, where things got difficult. Uh, that brings my mind to a few years ago in Honduras. Pastor Greg and I got a chance to go to Honduras a few years ago. By the way, Pastor Greg, who is on sabbatical right now, we got a chance to have uh, breakfast with him a few days ago, and he's doing really well. He had knee replacement surgery uh, a few weeks ago, but it's, it's, it's recovering well. He's doing well, um, and he'll be back around Easter. So just wanted to give you a quick update on Greg. Thanks for praying for him and Sherry, and we're excited to have them back soon. Uh, so Greg and I went to Honduras and visited our global missions partner there, Kike. And we have a picture here of Kike and his family, Belinda, their son Henry, and their ministry there, Ascenso. They are reaching the youth in Honduras. Uh, through outdoor ministry, which is kind of like a whole new thing in Honduras. They live in, in kind of the mountainous region of Honduras, and they're doing some incredible work uh, there with, with the students. And uh, so we were there a few years ago, kind of dreaming, praying about the ministry, got some great time with Kike and Belinda. And on a Sunday, they invited us to come with them to a church service in Agua Salada. And Agua Salada is a remote mountain village uh, if you look at a map, it looks like it should only take about 30 minutes from where Kike lives to Agua Salada, but the roads uh, dictate that it takes much longer than that. It's about two and a half hours to get there, and we have a picture here of the road to Agua Salada. Yeah, so it, it, these aren't potholes. These are pot canyons, right? Like this is, this is a bad road, and, and it is really difficult to get across, and it's like that the entire way there. It's bumpy. If you've ever been on a boat and then you go to bed at night and you're still like on the boat, right? You're still rocking. That's what we were doing that night from, from driving on the road to Agua Salada. We were still bouncing around uh, because of how sketchy the roads were. And not only was the condition of the road this bad, but you're going through the mountains and kind of the jungle and there's some twists and turns and sharp curves. And there's a couple of cliffs where you can just see the road is, is right there. And then there's a steep drop down the hill. And so uh, it would have been very easy. I think it was uncomfortable. But it would have been easy for it to be, frankly, terrifying. Or for us to even question, like, are we on the right road? Are we on the right path? But here's the thing. We, we never really were worried because Kike was leading us. Kike was behind the wheel. He knew the way. In fact, he'd driven this road dozens of times before, and so he knew kind of how to adjust for the pot canyons and, and, and where to slow down and where to speed up. He knew the road perfectly. And so we had confidence that with the right leader, we would make it to our destination. And we did. We made it to Agua Salada. We had an incredible church service that day, uh, we, we got to fellowship with the people and made it back uh, to Kike's hometown. Uh, in one piece, we survived the road to Agua Salada. Well, today, we're going to see as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is driving us to a decision. He's going to use three contrasts today. He's going to do some compare and contrast of three things to help drive his point home. He's taught us the path to righteousness, and today he'll call it the way to life. There is a way to life, 
a path of life. And in contrast, there's another way. There's another road we can take, but it's a path of death. And we're going to see through these comparisons that we need Jesus to lead us on the right path. This is our main idea this morning. The path to life is found in following the way and the words of Jesus. The way and the words of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 13. And uh, we're, we're reading, as we usually do, teaching from the ESV version here this morning. So Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Let's read the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So first here, Jesus is going to compare for us two gates. We've got two gates. First, we have a gate that leads us on an easy path. It's a wide gate, Jesus says. He says that it leads to a way that is easy. And why is the way easy? If you think of an easy path, a wide path, a wide road, think of the the Autobahn in Germany, right? It's this wide four-lane highway where you can sort of deviate on it. You can move around within the path. You can sort of carve your own path out within the road. It's easy to travel. You can travel it quickly. And Jesus says many will enter this gate. So think about what it looks like to enter into a wide gate, to enter through a wide gate. Think about what that looks like. If you, if you come to a, a fence that has a wide gate or a wide entrance to something, you don't really have to slow down. You don't really have to change your approach at all to pass through the wide gate. You can just walk through it, right? It's easy to enter. So many, Jesus says, will enter this gate. So what does this look like practically? I think this looks like choosing our own way, choosing comfort, choosing the easy path. We talk about it in Redemption Kids Ministry, choosing a my way heart versus a God's way heart. Choosing what I want, allowing me to be the king of my own kingdom. This is the easy path, the wide gates. It's a comfortable road, but the problem is this. The wide gate leads to an easy way, but the ultimate destination is destruction. It's death. It's an easy path that many will enter into, but the ultimate destination will be destruction. So it's good news for us that there is another gate. There's another way. Jesus tells us that this gate is a gate that leads to life. Verse 14, he says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so why is this way hard? Why does the narrow gate lead to a hard way? Well, you think, of a, again, of a narrow path. You think of the road to Agua Salada. You, you can't choose your own adventure on Agua Salada, right, the road to Agua Salada. You've got to follow the road that's been laid out for you. You can't deviate on, into your own path. 
Jesus here says, few find this gate. Few will find the narrow gate and the narrow path. This implies that this gate, this path has to be found. You have to search it out. It's not obvious the way that the wide gate is. In addition, a narrow gate or entrance, if you come to a narrow doorway or walkway, an entrance through something, you have to change your approach. You have to change your walk to pass through it. It changes something about you. So what does this look like practically? We saw last week Jesus talking earlier in Matthew 7 about asking, seeking, knocking, this idea of searching out and choosing God's way over our own. I think this looks like embracing difficulty, suffering, dying to ourselves on a daily basis. This is not an attractive gate or path. It's much easier to walk through the wide gate. It's a much more attractive path to take. But Jesus says this narrow gate leads to a hard path, but the destination is life. The destination is life. This is the way of Jesus. We have any Mandalorian fans in the house? Star Wars? Oh, man, more than first service. Fantastic. So Mandalorian, Star Wars show, season three just debuted, right? And, and they're saying, the Mandalorian saying is, this is the way, right? This is the way. I couldn't help but think about that as I studied this week, right? Jesus is saying to us, this is the way. The difficult path, the path of suffering, the path of dying to yourself, this is the way. To follow Jesus is to embrace his way of suffering, his way of hardship, his way of pain and difficulty. You see, this is the path that Jesus chose. He chose the narrow gate. He chose the narrow way. In fact, we're going to see this as we continue through Matthew. We're going to kind of choose a few uh, passages through Matthew as we lead up to Easter. And we're going to see that we have a Savior on a mission. And this is his mission to walk the path of difficulty, the path of suffering, to the point of death on a cross so that we could be forgiven from our sins. And now he calls us to a similar path. Why is that? I want to put up here our our redemption vision statement. We've been saying this a lot over the last year, that we want to follow Jesus together to see kingdom transformation in our lives, church, and world. Kingdom transformation. If you think of what it takes to transform something, you can't just wish transformation upon something, right? You can't just hope it transforms. You have to put pressure on it. You have to shape it. You have to mold it. You might even have to break it a little bit to get it to transform into what you're wanting. And so it is when we follow Jesus. God uses suffering, difficulty, hardship to shape us, to transform us into the people that he wants us to be for his kingdom purposes. We can't expect to follow Jesus and have a path of ease. It will be difficult but it will lead us to life. That's the ultimate destination on that path. Let's keep reading in verse 15 of our text. Jesus continues with a warning. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruits, but the diseased tree bears bad fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruits, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Beware, Jesus says, as he begins this warning, this comparison of two trees. He says, beware, be alert, be on guard of false prophets. Who are false prophets? Jesus warns us on multiple occasions during the Gospels of false prophets. In New Testament writers like, like Paul and Peter, they warn against these false teachers as well. And Jesus here says that false prophets will come in sheep's clothing. They will look good on the outside. They will look like true teachers on the outside. But inwardly, Jesus says they are ravenous wolves. That's quite a description, isn't it? Ravenous wolves. Last week, we saw Jesus use the terms dogs and pigs to describe those who would attack and trample the gospel. I think he's getting at something similar here. These false prophets will attack the gospel. They're dangerous as wolves even though they look like sheep on the outside. Jesus describes them as ravenous, as extremely hungry. What are they hungry for? Well, throughout Jesus' warnings on false prophets and throughout the New Testament, we see that the defining feature of a false prophet is self-interest. They're hungry for their own gain or power or prestige. They look like they are about God's way and God's kingdom, but they are truly only out for themselves. Jesus says we will recognize them by their fruits. There can be no good fruit from false teachers, just like there won't be good fruit from thorn bushes or from thistles. Jesus takes the warning further here in verse 17. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit." But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So let's compare these two trees for a second, okay? Let's compare some trees. Jesus says a healthy tree bears good fruit. Now, I've been on a roll lately with my crack research on Google and the internet. So I thought I'd just keep it going this week, okay? All right, so buckle up, everyone. So I I did some research this week about trees, okay? Does anybody know a lot about trees and gardening? Good, that makes me feel better. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, if, you, if I'm wrong here, come and correct me afterwards. But, but here's what I learned about healthy trees. What's a healthy tree? Well, a healthy tree receives proper nutrients for growth. Things like carbon dioxide and oxygen and, of course, sunlight, right? Secondly, a, a healthy tree has strong roots, roots that are connected to the life source, which is water, They're able to receive water and strengthen the tree. In addition, a healthy tree is one that's planted in a wise place where it can receive those nutrients consistently. This is a healthy tree. So let's compare now to a diseased tree. Jesus says a diseased tree bears bad fruit. So what do we see in nature when it comes to a diseased tree? It's really the opposite of the healthy tree. A diseased tree is not receiving the proper nutrients needed for growth. In addition, roots 
uh, it has roots that have been damaged. And, and get this, a tree with damaged roots not only is unable to receive the correct nutrients, but those roots now allow for easy access to infections and things that will attack it. You start seeing why, why Jesus uses trees and vines and branches, right? So much to teach. There's so much good truth in here for our souls. Jesus says that a, a, a diseased tree will bear bad fruit. And one of, the, one of the things in nature that we see of a tree that's unhealthy is that it's, it's been overcrowded. That there's other plants, there's too many things planted in the same spot that are stealing the nutrients from that tree, this brings to mind the parable of the sower, right? Matthew 13, go read it as Jesus warns about seed that's planted, but, but it's not in good soil so it can't grow, or it begins to grow, but the cares of the world like weeds choke it out, steal away its growth. This is what Jesus is getting at here with these comparisons of a healthy tree and a diseased tree. And then Jesus says this, verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, I believe Jesus, okay? I take him at his word. But I'm on a roll here with my crack research, okay? So I'm going to do some more research, and I made my way to a gardening website, okay? Because everything you read on the internet is true, right? No, definitely not, right? Don't read don't believe anything you read on the internet. But, but it's a gardening website, right? So how can a gardening website lead you astray? So I'm reading about diseased trees. This was my week. Did anybody have this exciting of a week? This week I'm reading about diseased trees. Okay, and I'm, and I'm scrolling through this article. And uh, in the article, it actually said that even if you have a diseased tree, you usually can still eat the fruit from it. So I thought, hold on a second. This seems to contradict what Jesus is saying, right? A, a diseased tree cannot produce good fruit. It's not possible. So I, I kept scrolling through the article, and I came across, there's a photo in the article. We've got the photo up here, okay? Here's the photo, all right? So this is an example of fruit on a diseased tree, okay? So underneath the photo, there's a caption, Here's what it says. Apple scab, which you can kind of stop right there, right? Apple scab. Apple scab may be unsightly, but you can cut it off and still enjoy the fruit underneath. And I thought to myself, listen, gardening website, <laughs> blog, here's where you lost me, Right? I don't know about you, but I'm not enjoying that fruit. I want nothing to do with apple scab, okay? That sounds terrible. You see, the fruit might still be edible, but that doesn't mean that it's good. Big difference. And this is the point that I think Jesus is making. You can't miss bad fruit. It's undeniable. You can't cover up the apple scabs. And if you see bad fruits, it means there's something wrong with the tree. And Jesus says in verse 19 that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
The picture is stark. A bad tree not only fails to produce good fruit, but it's headed for destruction. And Jesus says in verse 20, we will recognize these false prophets by their fruits. So when it comes to weighing what is true or false teaching or who is a true or a false prophet, we need to look for the fruits. Is it in line with God's word or the wisdom of man? Does it bring glory to God or does it bring glory to the teacher? Does this person's life show good fruits? Do we see the hallmarks of the fruit of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or do we see the things that Paul warns about in Galatians? Immortality, immorality, strife, jealousy, anger, division. If they claim immortality, you'd probably run away from that too, right? As usual, Jesus' warning of false prophets serves as a warning to us as well. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us so much and giving us, giving his disciples that he's teaching, giving us things to look out for, warnings, but always Jesus is aiming at our hearts. And there's a warning for us here as well. I can't help but think about his disciples, the primary audience listening to these words, and then the crowd gathered around. And among this group, among his disciples is Judas, who's about to choose the easy path that leads to destruction, who's not connected to Jesus, who's not going to be obedient to Jesus, and he's headed for destruction. He doesn't heed the warning of Jesus in this moment. So how do we know who is a false teacher or a true teacher? And how do we know that, that we are healthy in and of ourselves, that good fruit will be produced in our own life? Well, back in Advent this past December, we studied through John 15, and there's such a beautiful analogy there that Jesus makes, this picture of the vine, right, abiding in Jesus, being connected to Jesus. And he says, if you're connected to me, if you abide in me, there will be good fruit in your life. It will be produced. It's a guarantee. But Jesus says, if we're not abiding in Jesus, if we pursue our own source of truth, if we disconnect from his word, we will wither, we'll die. What's more, in order to know what good and bad fruit is in ourselves and in others, we need to know God's word. We need to know the truth of scripture. You see, you have to know what is true in order to identify what is false. This is so important in our world today, isn't it? Because you can find all kinds of sources of truth, especially on the internet. Watch out for the gardening websites, okay? Right? You're going to find all kinds of stuff out there. How do we know what is true? It's God's word. This is our authority for what is true and what is good. To follow Jesus is to be deeply connected to him and his word. We need to be deeply connected to him and his word. Just as it is with a tree, the fruit in our life is the result of the nutrients we're receiving. I mentioned this again during Advent, the, the kids' song. Some of you have heard, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow. Don't read your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink. 
It's so simple, but it's so true. We need to be connected to Jesus and to his word every day, and we will grow. We will be healthy. We'll be able to tell what is true and what is not. Let's keep reading our text. Verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here Jesus compares two fates. We've seen two gates, two trees, now two fates. And what I mean by that is two end results, two destinations that we will all face, one or the other. Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to say, Lord, Lord? The title Lord, as used in scripture, implies authority or power. To call someone Lord is to say that they rule or master over you. So to say Jesus is Lord is to say that he is God that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Revelation, we see that he is called the Lord of lords. He is the authority above all authorities. He rules and masters over everything. And so Jesus here is saying that it's possible to declare these truths without actually believing them. Jesus says, on that day, verse 22, on that day, what day is he talking about? It's clear that he's speaking of judgment day, of a day in which we will all stand before our righteous judge, Jesus. And there are two fates for those standing before Jesus on that day. First, there's a fate for the one who does not do the will of the Father in heaven. Jesus says that there's, there's a group of people, this first group of people that will say, Lord, we prophesied and cast out demons and did mighty works in your name, in the name of Jesus. But in verse 23, Jesus says, I never knew you. Jesus never knew them. And it's interesting that Jesus here doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. What is it to be known by Jesus? Think about what it is to be known by someone, by by a friend or a family member. What is it to be known by someone? It's opening up yourself to them, right? It's allowing them to see every part of you, the good and the bad. It's not being a hypocrite. It's not putting on a show. It's allowing someone to see and embrace all of who you are. Of course, we know that Jesus is God, and so God made us. He knows us. He, he does know us, but Jesus here is implying that we have a choice to make of whether we fully surrender ourselves to him or not. Jesus is speaking here of lordship. He's using that term, Lord, Lord, a couple times to, to, to help us see that there's something different between declaring that Jesus is Lord and actually living as though he is Lord, actually believing it? Have you surrendered lordship of your life to Jesus, saying everything I have, everything I am, 
all of me is yours. You rule and master over it. See, an acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship must go hand in hand with a submission to his authority. If Jesus is Lord, then he has the right to tell us what to do. Again, that's hard for us as human beings, I think as Americans, right? We, we, don't wanna, we don't really like that idea of being ruled over. But that's what it is to trust in Jesus, not just as Savior, but also as Lord. Yes, it's declaring Jesus is my Savior. He is the one who has died for my sins. He's paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. He has saved me from my sins. Yes and amen. But Jesus is also Lord. He rules over my life. He is the final authority. He can tell me what to do and how to live. This is what lordship looks like. Jesus says this first group of people has declared Jesus as Lord with their mouths. They've done good work in his name with their lives but they have not submitted to the authority and lordship of Jesus in their hearts. And Jesus says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, depart from me. This heartbreaking message means that that these people will be sent to hell, to eternal condemnation and separation from God. He calls them workers of lawlessness. There was no true obedience here. Now, I, I want to make a quick note here because I've heard this text used to teach that we can lose our salvation. We don't believe that that's true. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. It's important to note here that Jesus says, I never knew you. Verse 23, I never knew you. It wasn't that he knew them and then later they fell away. Jesus never knew these people. They did all this work for Jesus in his name. They declared the right things, but Jesus never knew them. It's good news then that there is a different fate for the one who does the will of the Father. That's the contrast here. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the logical question is, what is the will of the Father in heaven, right? I want to do that. I don't want Jesus to say, depart from me when I stand before him one day. So what is the will of the Father? Well, Jesus makes it clear here that that it is tied to obedience and to his word, that, that obedience to him is proof of our faith. John 14, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will keep my word, will do as I say. But then we might say, well, hold on. Aren't we saved by grace through faith alone, not by works? Ephesians 2, right? How does this work? So I, I was going to do my best to try to like encapsulate this in a 60-second in a theologically sound answer. But then I decided, you know what? Don Carson has done that already much better than I will. And so I'm going to read to you what Don Carson says. I think he explains it well. He says this. He says, it is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace. And it turns it into something unrecognizable. 
Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. It dawns on me that it seems as though trying to trust in Jesus, declare faith in Jesus without obeying his word is like choosing the easy path, right? It's not going to lead to life. We're called to a hard road of obedience, surrender to Jesus' authority and lordship in our lives. So it is about obedience, but it's also about more than that. Because remember, Jesus here is referencing a group of people that stand before him having done a lot of things that we might call outward obedience. It looks like they've been obedient. They've declared the right things, and yet they fall short of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because Jesus never knew them. You see, the one who does the will of the Father is known by Jesus. The will of the Father is for us to know Jesus and to be known by him, to surrender ourselves completely to him and to his authority in our lives. John 6, 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of the Father. Okay, he says it. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is the will of the Father that we believe in Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. Let me explain it to you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, faith in Jesus is knowing him and submitting to him. There's only one basis of salvation. It isn't mere verbal profession. We're called to profess our faith with our mouths, and that's, that's a good thing, but it's not just that. Our basis for salvation is not good works. We're called to good works that have been prepared in advance for us, but it's not just that. In the end, there's one basis of salvation. It's knowing Jesus and being known by him. It's faith, surrendering to Jesus. To follow Jesus is to trust in him as Savior and as Lord. Both. The end of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to see next week is late. As <laughs> late. Coach Late. That's what we called you at soccer practice when you didn't show up on time. Sorry. Coach Nate, Pastor Nate, he's going to close up Sermon on the Mount next week. And we're going to see this really cool, uh, just a couple verses at the end of Matthew 7, where the, the crowd, hearing these words, they just respond in awe. It's like their jaws are on the floor, like, whoa. What just happened here? And, and it says that they're in awe of Jesus' authority. That he speaks as one with authority, not as their teachers and scribes. There's something different about Jesus, and it's that he has authority over righteousness. He's the expert. So I think today as we read this text and these warnings, it, you can't help but, man, take a deep breath, right? This is heavy. This is sobering. This warning, I, I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and have him say, I never knew you. I think it should cause some healthy fear and healthy reflection for us. 
And so in a moment, I'm going to kind of close things up, but I want, to, I want to pause for a second. I don't want to rush through this. I want to take some time to sit with Jesus' words. I love how Nate started us off today, just taking some time for reflection. We're going to do that again right now, some time for a personal prayer and reflection just quietly on your own. And I have a few questions up here that maybe will help you get started or, or just, just talk to God and see what the Spirit leads you to. But maybe, maybe the question for you this morning is, and I'm not sure if I have trusted in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. If not, respond to him today. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Put your trust in him. Or maybe the question for you is, I've trusted in Jesus, but, man, am I deeply connected to him and to his word? Do I see good fruit in my life? Or maybe the question is, have I embraced a path of ease, my own way, versus choosing Jesus' way, which is difficult and hard? Let's take some time right now to wrestle, to reflect, to pray, to take these things to God. And our worship team is going to lead us in a song here in just a few minutes.